0: Writing can be a difficult habit to develop, especially if you live in a world of distractions. Now, I know we all live in a world of distractions, but there is one distraction to rule them all. Children. So, if you're a writer and a parent, you may be wondering if those two roles can exist simultaneously in the same person. You may be struggling to find balance between your writing and your God-given responsibility to raise your beautiful children. And maybe you see other moms with successful writing careers, and maybe they're even homeschooling their 17 children at the same time. We're looking at you, Trisha Goyer, and you wonder, how do they do it? How do busy moms find time to write and be a mom at the same time? Well, that is what we're going to talk about today in this episode of The Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to honor God with their writing. I'm your host, the CEO of Author Media, Thomas Umstead, Jr., and today... We have a guest who is a best-selling author, a national speaker, host of the International Prayers of Rest podcast, and a mom of three spunky kids, all at the same time, all in one person. Ashrita Choo, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's my joy to be here.
0: So, tell us about your kids. How old are they?
1: Yeah, so my oldest is eight. Middle child is five and a half, and my youngest is three, and they absolutely are spunky.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My oldest is three, and I can only imagine. I can only imagine. So what came first, the children or the writing? Where did your writing career come from?
1: Yeah, so I always wanted to be a writer. I'm born to parents who have a pretty incredible story. And so growing up, people would say, someone should write this story. And it just kind of fell on my shoulders that Ashrita will grow up to do it. And so it's always been my dream. I have not yet written that story, but it is on my very long list of projects to work on someday. But that was just burning in my heart from a young age to be a writer. And I actually thought I would be writing fiction. And that's not where I started. My family went through a really difficult season right out of college, and I set all those dreams aside and got a job in telemarketing, of all things, <laughs> and it just kind of focused on healing and growing and doing the next right thing. And then there came a point where It just felt like multiple people were telling me the same thing, and it felt like maybe God was trying to communicate to me. And that message was, God has given a gift, and you've buried it, and it is time to unbury that talent and put it in his service, and it's time for you to start writing. So I'm a researcher at heart. I love learning how to do things, and I researched for a few months how to become a writer, how to get published, and this was back in 2012, 2013. And I learned that blogging is the way to start because you need to build your audience. And so I made my master plan and it just so happened I got pregnant at the same time. And I realized that with pregnancy comes a maternity leave. And I thought, wow, what a perfect time for me to start my blog because I'll be home with nothing to do.
0: Ah, the (laughs) (laughs) optimism of being a first-time mother. How hard could it be having a newborn?
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I was so naive. And yeah, I had my firstborn, Carissa, in September and started my blog, com, on October 1st when she was a month old. And it was so hard. And yet, looking back now, I can see just God's grace and His strength carrying me through those first few months of brain fog, and yet showing up to write consistently and to encourage other moms to make time for Jesus, to make him our one thing alone, even during the busy season.
0: There's a saying in business that the companies that often do the best are the ones that start during a recession. Because if you can make your company work during a recession, during bad economic times, then the good times just make it better. Whereas if you start your company in the good economic times, the first recession that you face is a real challenge because you you don't know what it's like to not have everything be easy. And I feel like with writing, it's the same sort of thing, right? If you can learn to develop the discipline of writing with a newborn being so needy, because let me tell you, they are needy, <laughs> and so not sleeping when you want them to sleep, then if when life does get easier, you're like, well, gosh, if I was able to write back then, I have no excuse now.
1: Mm-hmm. I have pictures with each of my children as newborns and infants on my chest holding them while I'm at my computer writing. And that's just, that's the way it started.
0: Because sometimes they just want you to hold them and they don't need anything else. They don't know, (laughs) like they don't need you to be there mentally. They just need you to be there physically. Mm -hmm. And you only get so much time to hold them as a newborn. Like, yes. In fact, right before coming up here uh, to do this episode, my children were begging me to read them books and so I was like okay one book and then one book turned into two books and two (laughs) books turned into three books but then I finally came up and I did the interview but how do you navigate that right because as they do get older they do need more than just sitting on your test right they need you to be present mentally how do you go from working on the blog post or working on the rough draft to being there mentally with your kids
1: so I I struggled with this for a long time because it felt like no matter what I was doing, I was feeling guilty. Like if I was at my computer writing, I felt guilty that I wasn't spending time with my children. If I was with my children reading books or maybe making three meals a day for them, I felt guilty that I'm not working on my writing. And it just felt like a lose-lose proposition. And I reached out to a mentor mom from my local church. I'm just such a big believer in the importance of community and having people in your life who know you and see you and can speak truth into your life. And I asked her, I'm like, what am I doing wrong here? Like, how do I make this work? Because if God is calling me to put down my writing for a season, I will do it in a heartbeat. That was one of the things that I worked through, why I set aside writing for a season is because I said, I'm not going to sacrifice my family on the altar of ministry. I have seen that done in my own family and it caused such deep wounds in my life. And so I'm not going to do that to my kids. And so that was what compelled me to seek help to say, I would rather put it all down than hurt my children by ignoring them. And this older mom friend Looked at me and she said, "Ashrita, it, if God is calling you to lay it down, He will make that clear to you. But if He is calling you to both, then wherever you are, be all there. Mm. If you are with your children, be present with them, focus on them, just soak in the glory and the beauty of being a mom and having children. And when you sit down to write." Ignore the guilt and be all there. Be faithful to the work that God has called you to do. And when you step away from the computer, leave your work behind and just be present where your feet are. And I've not done that perfectly. I'm guilty of thinking of (laughs) outlines and theses and characters when I'm with my children. But it has been a mental exercise to set those thoughts aside and to be present. And it truly has helped so much.
0: I love that. Be present where your feet are. Because you're not going to do a good job drafting. I mean, ideas hit you wherever, you know, have a notepad to capture. That's a, a standard practice of authors everywhere. But you're not going to do a good job writing if you're feeling guilty. Because your your conscience is going to be sabotaging your work. And how did you work through that? How were you able to sit in front of the computer while your children were not with you in the other room and not feel guilty working on your book?
1: This is going to sound so like loosey-goosey, but part of it is trust and surrender. Again, holding this calling of being a writer. And I do view it as my job. And it helps that my husband views it that way too, that it's not just a hobby for me. Even when I was only working a few hours a week, I still treated it as my job. And so just like daddy has to go to work, mommy's going to work right now. And when mommy's done, she's going to come back and she'll be able to help you. And so having my husband's support there was such a big part of it. But the other part was, again, trusting... (laughs) That if God wants me to do something differently, that then he will make that abundantly clear. And it's a conversation that I have at the beginning of every new year <laughs> when I sit down to plan the year. It's in prayer and with my husband saying, what will we say yes to this year? How many hours am I committing to work this year? And it's been different in different seasons. In the middle of writing and publishing and launching books, oftentimes on top of each other. (laughs) i worked as much as 30 hours a week. And then there are times where it's been low and slow, and it's been only maybe five to 10 hours a week. And that's helped too, to know that there will be seasons where I will work less and be able to have more fun with my family. And there will be seasons that I can anticipate where more will be demanded of me. And um, at this point, my children, my husband, like as a family unit, we can anticipate the ebb and flow of publishing.
0: That's very natural. In fact, it's very ancient. Most of us are descended from farmer cultures. And if you ever interact with farmers, the work of operating a farm is not even, right? It's not like, oh, eight hours a day every day, do the work in the factory. When it's harvest time, you might be working 12 hours, 14 hours a day, right? If there's a harvest moon, you got a big full moon, you might be working even more than that. And if the ground is frozen, you just sleep all day. (laughs) And that was a normal rhythm. We were used to that. This whole like work eight hours in the factory is really new and it's really weird in a kind of how we operate as humans kind of way. Like you don't see that very often in very many places for very long. But we as Americans grew up with that mindset, right? You work eight hours working for Mr. Ford in the factory and then you have eight hours for yourself and eight hours to sleep, right? That's how the day is supposed to be structured. And instead of being in seasons, right, where there's seasons of rest, seasons of working really hard and giving yourself permission to work really hard in the harvest season and give yourself permission to rest really a lot in the winter season, right? Because back when candles were expensive, just a few hundred years ago, candles were like a day's amount of work to make just a handful of candles. So there was no light for most people when the sun went down, which meant when the sun went down, you slept and it's dark for a lot of the day. (laughs) And they gave themselves permission, but Thomas Edison declared war on sleep, and we've been following him ever since the electric light bulb was invented, and we're sleeping less and less. Speaking of rest, how do you work in rest?
1: I mean, this will come as no surprise to listeners, but a lot of it has to do with boundaries. When you were saying about the eight hours of work, eight hours to yourself, eight hours of sleep, I feel like right now we're living in a 24-7 hustle culture, where because of social media, because of the expectation of being online and being engaged and creating stories of our lives on Instagram, like everything is up for consumption. And I fell into that. It's still something I need to guard against because it's tempting to try to turn everything in my life into a story, into a blog post, into a reel or a TikTok. But that is so exhausting and so draining. And so a few years ago, again, sitting down with my husband, with women in my church who I have invited to speak into my life and saying, what kind of boundaries do I need to draw around my work life to keep it separate from my own personal life and my family life? And I've been in this now for eight and a half years of online ministry. And already I'm seeing people who we started at the same time and they're burning out because they can't keep up the constant pace of always being connected. Um, And so really practically, I have screen limits on my phone. So my social media apps do not turn on until 10 a.m., And they turn off at 8pm. So there is that window of time that I can access. And even within that, it's a 60 minute limit on all social media platforms combined. And so between those open hours, I can be on it for a max of an hour. There have been seasons where I have deleted Instagram and social media and I've taken sabbaticals off of social media before that was trendy. Like it seems like nowadays a lot of people are doing that. And I'm so happy because I think that's really good for our souls. But I started taking breaks when n- no one really <laughs> was daring to do that. And the response was, wow, you're so brave. I wish I could do that. Thomas <sighs> being off of social media, it, the first few days, it felt like very antsy. Like I should be doing something, I should be productive, I I should be creating content for my community. But after a while, it just led to this deep sense of rest, of remembering that I am loved by God, not for what I can do for Him, not for how much content I produce or how many books I write, but I am loved because He made me to be loved by Him. And just that simple reminder in the depths of my soul, knowing coming out of those breaks makes me a healthier writer and also a more present mom to my kids.
0: I could not agree more. I did an episode on my other podcast, Novel Marketing, which is all about why most authors don't need to do social media at all. Like This myth that social media is the way that you build your platform is a myth. It doesn't work. For almost all authors, right? For every Ashrita who is able to build a following on social media, there's probably 100 or 200 authors who tried and failed because it's not a good place to do it. And it's exhausting. And it's exhausting in a very specific way. Being on social media is like being a watchman on the wall where you're constantly looking out for danger. You're like scanning the horizon all the time for danger. And that does not mix well with being something else. Right? If you're going to be a good watchman, you have to really be present on the wall, staring at the horizon. And you can't be also writing a book on a parchment at the same time. (laughs) And yet we often try to. Do both at the same time where you're like glancing at the horizon, then glancing at your parchment, glancing at the horizon, glancing at your parchment. And it's a miserable way to live. So I love your approach of time boxing it. We have time that's social media free time, but also time limiting it where if you're only doing an hour of social media across all your platforms, that forces you to be really intentional with what you're doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also helped to remember that social media is so transient and so temporary. And so I could, and there were seasons where I would spend 45 minutes drafting an Instagram post that two weeks later, it didn't show up in anyone's feed. And so I'm at the point now where I would much rather spend those 45 minutes working on my current manuscript (laughs) and then (laughs) repurposing content where I'm pulling quotes from my published books to put on social media. That's just such a smarter use of time, in my opinion.
0: I have blog posts on my website that were written 10 years ago that still get thousands of visits a month. <laughs> it's like, these are blog posts that in some cases have benefited hundreds of thousands of people, but never a whole lot all at once. So they just get a steady trickle in. Podcasts are the same way. I imagine you see this, Asrita, with your podcast and you definitely see it with mine. Over half of our downloads are on our old episodes. People discover the podcast for the first time. They scroll back through the old episodes and then they download those old episodes. But a tweet It's just, it's here today and gone tomorrow unless somebody hates you and they dig up your old tweets from 10 years ago trying to get you canceled. (laughs) It's like, it can only hurt you after the first week. It doesn't help you and it doesn't help anyone else. And so I just want to give, those of you listening, I just want to give you permission to turn off social media and you don't have to take a break and come back. You could just turn it off. Any agent or publisher who tells you you still need to do it, is operating with an old mindset of how social media was in the early 2000s, and I encourage you to send them to my episode where I break it down, because I was the guru in the room with the politicians planning out social media strategies back when it worked, and I've been doing social media and helping people professional with social media for a long time, and now in almost all instances, I'm recommending against it, because it doesn't work. I have the numbers to prove It doesn't work. And not just for typical authors, for celebrities, too. But I'll stop myself on this because I'll go on and on about social media being toxic. (laughs) But you've mentioned several times your support network, your supportive husband and women at church. And so tell us a little bit more about that. What is the framework around your family that supports you?
1: Well, my husband's my biggest supporter by far, and I wouldn't be able to do what I do without him standing in my corner in just a general husband encouraging way, but also he is our IT guy. He builds all our websites. He's done a lot of design work for our ministry. So he helps behind the scenes a lot. And working with your spouse is a, another conversation for another episode. <laughs> this is definitely, it's a fine
0: Boundaries, in. people. Boundaries. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Date nights talking about book launches do not go well. But he's definitely been so encouraging. And I would put my mother-in-law up there as well. She, especially through the young, young season that we're next year going to get out of. So my three-year-old will go to preschool next year. But right now, as we're recording this, he is hanging out with my mother-in-law and loving life. (laughs) And so that makes it easier for me to be present writing, or in this case, podcasting an interview, knowing that my son is with someone who loves him and takes care of him. And my two oldest daughters are at school now. So we'll be in another season soon where all of my children will be in school. But these first few years, it was so important that we had childcare with people that we love and trust. And that was a big part of writing and publishing so many books in such a short period of time. My own mom was my very first email subscriber We just talked about this last week when I was at her house for dinner. I'm like, you know, you're the first person that signed up for my newsletter list. And now we are over 40,000 readers that are subscribed to my weekly devotional. But that very first subscription meant so much. And she's still the one who will tell all her friends about my books. So those are like the top three MVPs. And then underneath that are just so many women in my local church who pray for me, who encourage me, who love on my kids who will drop off meals at my house if we're all sick with COVID. The week that I need to turn in my manuscript, which (laughs) happened last year, (laughs) my manuscript was due and I got my positive result the next day. And my community showed up in a big way. And that's just such a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ works. I think sometimes we can elevate authors on a pedestal and think they're so important because they have a platform with followers, and all those terms are just foreign to the gospel. <laughs> in the body of Christ, we are all members of one another and we need each other. And so I've I've had the privilege of loving and serving my local church through my writing, but I can do it because they love and support me and my family in very practical ways.
0: And it takes humility to ask for help, right? They wouldn't have known you had COVID and known you had a deadline that week if you didn't let them know presumably, right? I mean, some churches, everyone's in everyone's business and there's no secrets. But (laughs) (laughs) for most people, like it's really easy to suffer alone or maybe suffer alone and then shake your fist. You know, why is the church not helping me? But it requires being willing to say, hey, I've got a deadline. Everyone's sick. Is there anyone who can bring me a meal? And that's okay, right? Like we breathe out, we help others, but we also breathe in and we have to receive help from others. And if you're a part of the body that's only wanting to help others and not Allowing the body to help you, that's an unhealthy part of the body. You're gonna get starved of the nutrients that you need. Absolutely. And also, grandma's house is a magical place. And we did this. (laughs) We lived far away from both of our parents. Because when we first got married, we're like, we want to be our own family, stand on our own feet as newlyweds. And then we had a baby, and then we had another baby and then another baby. And we're like, we need to be closer to our parents. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we moved just to be closer. To our parents, which our parents love because they love being with the grandkids, right? It's like grandparents are the people who love your kids just as much or almost as much as you do. What advice would you have for somebody who doesn't have that family? For whatever reason, maybe their parents aren't alive or it's not a healthy relationship. What advice would you have for them?
1: We did experience a little bit of this early in the pandemic when we weren't quite sure What was happening? And my husband worked from home. And so we kept the kids home with us. It was the five of us at home, locking down. And like I mentioned, I had a book that was going to be due soon. So without anywhere to send my children, (laughs) and with everyone home all day, and with everyone needing to eat three times a day. Um, it's <laughs> I really annoying.
0: You feed them. And like a few really hours is. later, they are hungry again.
1: <laughs> There's such a low ROI on making dinner. <laughs> but again, talking to my husband and saying, okay, I have this deadline. How are we going to meet it? And the manuscript ended up being 100,000 words, the longest book that I had written. And the only way it would work was for me to wake up before my kids. And so I hate to say it because it's the advice no one wants to hear. But waking up before the rest of the household and getting your word count in before other duties are demanded of you, there are seasons when that's the only way that you will make writing work. And it won't be that way forever. Your children will grow. They will get enrolled in school at some point. Or if they're homeschooled, like they will entertain themselves at some point. But just look at what you can do in the season instead of focusing on what you don't have. Look instead at what you do. There was another season when I wrote Uncovering the Love of Jesus, my Lenten devotional, where a daily writing rhythm was just not working for our family. And that book I wrote almost entirely in weekend spurts. And so there's a local coffee shop that I went to, and my husband would watch the kids Saturday from like... 8am until 4pm. And Thomas, I would go and that was like my weekend office. (laughs) (laughs) I sit myself in that chair. I would write for eight hours straight because it was the only writing time I had all week in that season of our life. And you know what? It worked. It wasn't ideal, but we made it work.
0: I'm reading a book right now called, I think it's called Essentialism. And it's all about living a life of rest and making things easy. And, and it's really good. I'll have a link in the show notes. And one of the questions that that book encouraged you to ask is, how could this be easier? Or how could this be easy? Right? It's like, oh, this doing it every day, that was working, right? And that is what professional writers do. I've interviewed enough professional writers where it's very rare to find a professional writer who's not writing first thing in the morning because you're smarter in the morning, you're more rested in the morning, the kids aren't up, or your spouse isn't up. Like the distraction, if you wake up before your distractions, you're always going to write more. But the other approach that I do see a professional writers using is that what I call the cabin in the woods approach, <laughs> which is where you run away and you have these longer, more extended writing periods where you really make it count. And so how do you pull that off? Cuz a lot of people are like, "Yes, I'm going to go write for 8 hours." And then they come back from the coffee shop after being at the coffee shop for eight hours, and they only wrote for two hours. And something else happened with the rest of that time, and they're not sure what. So how did you make that time? How did you turn that into writing, productive writing time?
1: Well, I would have ventured, to guess, that part of the something else that happened was probably a lot of social media. because (laughs) Look at you, Facebook, Instagram. (laughs) oh, I need to research this little portion of my devotional. And 45 minutes later, I'm in a YouTube dark rabbit hole on like Persian armor. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how did we end up here? (sighs) So yes, that's one thing, just shutting down your internet, setting that, again, boundary on your laptop. Like, this is my writing time. Another thing that's helpful is having rituals. Which I heard other writers who have like pre writing rituals, and it always felt kind of woo woo (laughs) to me (laughs) until I had to sit down to write my second long book in a year. And that's the book that I'm finishing right now. So, another 100,000 words within (laughs) the year of writing my previous book. And I felt, unless I had something that told my brain it's go time, I would do everything else. I would respond to emails I hadn't responded to in months. I would clear off my desk. I would suddenly have an itching to do laundry. And so having a ritual can help get your mind in the zone of it is time to write. And because I write devotionals and Christian living books for women, what I found to be the most helpful ritual is prayer. And again, that sounds like a cop out, <laughs> but it works. And so I I followed this acronym that I found from John Piper, APTAP, that he uses when he prepares sermons. And this is literally how I would start every writing session in the coffee shop. I would A, acknowledge my need for God. And I that's just, I would start typing. I'm like, I just need to get words on the page. And so I would start writing, God, I can't do this. These are all the reasons I don't want to write today. This is everything that's heavy on my heart today. And I know I need you. The P is to pray for help. And so I would literally ask God, would you help me write what I need to get done today? The T is trust a promise. And John Piper encouraged that you find a promise from scripture that you would hold on to and pray for that time. And one of my go-to verses when I sit down to write to pray is that we labor with all of Christ's energy that works so powerfully within us. And so I would pray that and trust that.
0: If you think that rituals are woo-woo, some of you are listening like, okay, I believe in prayer, but this whole idea of like a ritual, just watch some baseball. (laughs) Because every single (laughs) baseball player has a ritual that they do at the plate to get into the zone. And what that ritual is depends on the baseball player, right? Maybe they do the sign of the cross Maybe they tap the plate in just a certain way. They take a certain number of practice swings, but it's always exactly the same. It's never different. And your ritual that you go through this prayer reminded me of Charles Spurgeon's ritual before he preached. So, he's called the Prince of Preachers, right? He, probably still the most famous preacher. And he probably gets as many downloads for his sermons from 200 years ago as any of the top preachers today. And he preached its hot to a congregation of thousands of people before amplification. So, he had this special pulpit it was like a tower in the middle of the room with special acoustics. So, he had to walk up these stairs before preaching. And according to one story I heard, he would recite to himself, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit the whole way up the stairs to get himself in the zone, but also to submit himself to God so that when he was ready to preach, he'd gone through this ritual. And I come from a Protestant tradition that's not big on rituals. <laughs> so there's high church, like Catholic and Anglican, and then there's low church. And I come from a very low church background. And as I grow older, I'm realizing that just because something is a ritual doesn't mean that it's evil. And just because a ritual has lost its meaning to some people doesn't mean that it never had meaning. And having rituals as a part of your life, I think, can be really positive. And it shouldn't be rejected out of hand just because we're, quote, not that kind of Christian, unquote.
1: Yeah, I feel like the older I get, Thomas, the more I see the wisdom of our forefathers and foremothers. And I find myself borrowing their wisdom. <laughs> so I actually wrote down that prayer from Spurgeon. I'm like, I think I have a lot of speaking coming up this year. I think I might <laughs> borrow that one. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I have a prayer that I do before I give a talk, just quietly, to, partly to to settle my nerves, but also to, to remind me kind of why I'm there. Because nervous energy is really powerful. Like the thing that you need the most to be creative is energy, right? And nervous energy is a really good form of that. But you got to channel it, right? You got to point it in the right direction. And that's one of the differences in athletes before the between the top performers and the ones that don't perform well is how they interpret that energy. Because some people feel that energy and they think that they're nervous. Whereas the pro athletes feel that energy and they tell themselves they're excited, right? It's the same energy. It's that same adrenaline, but excitement helps you perform better. Nervous nerves cause you to choke. So the old aphorism goes, it's not about getting rid of the butterflies. It's about making them fly in formation. But back to your support network. Your husband... Worked, sounds like he worked a day job in the early days, and so, you know, he's watching the kids on the weekend. Is he still working a day job, or is he now a part of the ministry? What does it look like now that you're seven years in?
1: Yeah, both. So, he still works his day job. He works for our hospital, our local hospital, and runs IT for them. And he also, in the evenings and on weekends, will put in a few hours for our ministry. So, a little bit of both. And that's something that, again, we keep praying about and keep talking about. Is there a time when he makes the leap to work full-time for our ministry? And I have friends who've done that. And so it's very appealing in some ways because we're really good friends. We were childhood friends before we got married. So we work well together. But at this point, we decided that the pressure of making a full-time income that would support both of us and our whole family, just from my writing and our ministry, would probably do more harm than good. (laughs) So we're very blessed that we can live on his income. And then everything that we make, which Thomas, year over year, God has been blessing us financially to the point where we probably could make it. But just not having that pressure has been such a relief.
0: Him joining the ministry at this point would add a lot of stress because it would reduce your income sources. So even if in the next year, the amount of money coming in doubled so that the total amount would mean he didn't need to work his day job. It's still a reduction in the income sources. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes. It says, work hard in the morning and stay busy all afternoon because you don't know where your profit will come from. It could come from the one, the other, or both. And the idea is that like in the morning, you're plowing your fields, right? You're doing your outdoor work, That's high risk, high reward, right? The crops come in, it's a big return, bad weather, the crops die, you get nothing, and then you're working in the afternoon on the kind of more day-to-day stuff that's less risky, lower reward. And you don't know what God's going to bless, but be diversified, right? Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. In fact, it's that exact same passage in Ecclesiastes where Solomon's talking about diversification, He uses the language of bread and water, which is a little confusing. He's like, cast your bread upon the waters and let it go to four or five different places. It's a little confusing, but it's diversification is the language we would use nowadays for that same idea. And I think having that diversification is smart. And you have to really feel strong in the income sources of the ministry, I think, to put everything there. Because if your whole family is in it then ministry stress becomes family stress and it just ripples and ripples and adds a lot of fractures. So I want to encourage you in that. I think that's very wise <laughs> to keep that alternate source of income. And it also, it's easier to make righteous decisions, I think, when you're not so financially stressed or like, well, we got to make this work. So good work on that.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, it, it really has helped too, to have that open hand policy in prayer to say, okay, Lord, like, If you're telling us to shut something down, we can do it. If you're telling us to walk away from something, we can do it. And that has been a big relief as well.
0: Yeah. So what are some mistakes that you've made over these last seven years with balancing writing and motherhood?
1: Hmm. Probably the biggest thing I see in new writers, especially those who are balancing parenthood and writing, is that they want to be published right away. And so they're willing to quit their day job. They're willing to put all their eggs in this basket. And they're just hustling hard after that contract. And what I've found myself advising other writers who come to ask, what would you do differently? Or what do you think I should do in this situation? And that is to enjoy the process and to be okay with what my friend Jennifer Dukesley calls growing slow. Be okay with putting in hours of honing your craft and learning how to write and learning how to listen to your readers and their needs so that you're writing to meet them in their place of need instead of writing because you want to tell your story. I mean, those are two very, very different types of writing. Um, Being okay with showing up and serving the people that God has placed in front of you, even if that's hundred readers. Uh, That's a hundred people who are listening to your words and who are being encouraged by what you have to say. And so don't strive for those tens of thousands of readers because you're probably not ready for that yet. (laughs) Don't try to skip the steps, but rather be faithful where you are. Be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. Be faithful with that readership community And invest in them, nurture those relationships, show up for them consistently, and then watch as God grows at the right pace. And you can trust in that. And so, to answer your question more directly mistakes that I made that I wish I wouldn't have, a lot of it has to do with hustle and with striving and just setting very aggressive goals for our ministry and doing it in a way that sounded really spiritual. Like, God, would you bless our ministry tenfold? And, and we want to grow from X number of readers to you know double or triple or 10Xing. And a lot of that had to do with the productivity books that I was reading and the podcast that I was listening to and just drinking the internet marketing Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last few years, I've really slowed down and ask God to help me write from a place of rest, love others from a place of rest, and be okay with the portion that He has allotted to me instead of coveting someone else's platform.
0: Because it could be God's mercy that you're still small. If you're ministering to those 50 people reading your blog, and that's all you've got, and you're like, why don't I have 500? Why don't I have 50,000? Is somebody who's written blog posts, have been read by 50,000 people and 100,000 people, let me tell you, that is a really different experience. And it's psychologically, it's harder, and you get a lot more hate, right? You minister to those 50 people, you're probably not going to get any hate back, right? Like, it gets harder, it gets complicated, and it can mess with you, right? Being famous can mess with you and really damage your faith and your walk, it, and it can inhibit your Growth as a Christian and sometimes in really toxic ways, right? Sometimes fame can be the weeds that choke the seed in that parable of the sower, right? Some of the seed falls on the good soil and some of it starts growing, but it's choked by weeds. And we've seen that, right? What is it? The instructions on elders. I think it's in Timothy about don't put a baby believer, don't make them a leader, right? You got to get those roots in before you have that fame, before you become an elder. And obviously. Being a blogger and being an elder aren't the same, but there's some similarities, right? People are coming to you for advice. They're coming to you for guidance. And it's important to be faithful in the little things because it's not just about serving those 50 people. The act of serving and loving those 50 people grows you and and teaches you how to minister so that when you do have the 50,000, you're in a place to do that with humility and with honesty and with integrity that you can really only learn or really only want to learn when you're small because the more famous you are the more painful the lessons are to learn it is it's really painful to have to learn hard lessons in front of lots of people
1: This is so heavy on my heart right now, Thomas, because I've sensed a small part of that double edged sword of popularity. I am by no means a popular writer or a household name, but right around Christmas time, my Advent devotional, Unwrapping the Names of Jesus, uh, is something that comes up a lot in a lot of people's feeds. And so I get bombarded by messages from families who are using my Advent devotional and I'll tell you what, pride is so sneaky. <laughs> and we were not made for greatness, despite what your little memes in social media feed say. <laughs> we were not made to be great. We were made to worship the only one who is great. And that's something that I'm so glad that I didn't experience that taste of notoriety eight years ago or five years ago. It already costs so much for me to be guarding my soul that Asherita five years ago would not have been prepared for that. And even now, sometimes I ask God, I'm like, just, Lord, protect me from pride. Help me stay humble. Help me learn how to point to you. When I get people saying kind things about my words, because let's face it, like that's the reason we write and publish is because we want people to read what we have to say. I mean, that's a good thing. And yet learning how to handle uh, positive acclaim is something that I think comes with time and character and maturity. And I'm still learning that. So that would be something else to new writers. Like, don't rush for that too soon. Let God work on your character and maturity and trust that he will bring the right thing at the right time.
0: There's a passage in Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. There's good stuff in Leviticus. <laughs> and it's about God's instructions on growing a fruit tree. So, what's the biblical way to grow a fruit tree? Well, here's his instructions for the Israelites. And he said, for the first three years, don't eat the fruit from the tree. So, you are planted this baby tree. It, you're not expecting to live off the tree or to not starve, right? So, you're going to starve if you're expecting this fruit tree to feed you in the first year or the second year or the third year. If you ever planted a fruit tree, they don't produce much in the first few years. In fact, they don't produce anything for the first year. And then in the fourth year, you give it to God, right? You give all of the fruit to God, and you don't expect to get fruit from the tree until year five. So, for the first three years, what fruit that is falling from the tree, you're letting it fall to the ground where it's going to rot. And you're like, but that fruit is rotting. I could eat that fruit. He's like, you could, but if you let it rot on the ground... The nutrients from that fruit are going to go back into the soil, back into the roots of that tree and help the tree be a stronger tree. And it means having a plan for other food to eat for those first five years. And I think this really applies to starting a business, but it also applies to being an author where you need to have a plan to eat for those first five years of being an author, for those first 10 years being an author, because writing is not going to get you there, especially book writing. Book writing is not a very lucrative business you have to have some other way to put food on the table. And if you're trying to make book writing put food on the table in the early days, you're going to really stress that tree out. You're going to stress yourself out and you're probably not going to get there. You're going to burn out because it is not like digging a ditch. It is not the thing you can hustle your way to writing success. And going back to one other thing that you said, Ashrita, you know, about not publishing too soon. It's also important for your craft, right? One, The ninth commandment of novel marketing is thou shalt not publish thine first book first, (laughs) right? Your first book is meant to teach you how to write, not to be something that you publish. And if you're willing to put that first book aside, if you're willing to let it fertilize the soil, it will help all of your subsequent books because you'll be a better writer for your second book. And you'll be treated better by the industry and by readers if they think your second book is really your first book because you're not showing them that terrible first book that you wrote.
1: You learned so much in that first book writing process. It's incredible to me. So yeah, I, I cringe when I go back even to read some of those first blog posts because that was like exercise in writing consistently and showing up and serving my readers. And I have now archived most <laughs> blog posts before 2016 because I cringe.
0: I'm thankful that my very first blog was on an old blogging platform that is buried in the annals of the internet. It is still findable and occasionally people will go and find it, but they never share an article from there because nothing there is any good. <laughs> it's just for the curiosity of of Thomas's blog posts look like when they weren't very good, which is pretty boring. But tell us a little bit about your podcast, because you have a podcast very popular. It's in the top 0.5% of all podcasts online. What is your podcast?
1: Yeah, my podcast called Prayers of Rest. And it started during the pandemic, just a few weeks into the lockdown, when I just felt a sense of anxiety with the whole rest of the world. And sense that God was calling me to meet with him every day, And so I showed up on Instagram Live the next day, just really hungry for community and to join with other women in prayer, and went live, prayed for 30 minutes, and did that every weekday, Thomas, for eight weeks straight, met with women around the world praying and walking them through this R.E.S.T. acronym of prayer. And after eight weeks, that turned into a weekly podcast so that people in different time zones could join us. And that was coming up on two years now of leading people around the world in resting in God's loving presence through prayer. That's also the title of my newest book with Moody Publishers is Prayers of Rest, Daily Prompts to Slow Down and Hear God's Voice. So it's been so fun. I think this is my eighth book to publish with Moody Publishers, and yet it's the first one that has a companion podcast. So that has been such a fun adventure.
0: And has that impacted... Book sales, having a companion podcast?
1: We're still a few months out from launch right now as we're recording this, so I don't have an answer to your question. But I will say there's a lot more excitement for this book because it started as a podcast and we had listeners write in saying, could we get like a written version of this prayer? Because I'd like to come back and pray another time. And so anytime you can write a book, that readers are asking for <laughs> that's that's always a good indicator so i'm i'm hopeful that prayers of rest will help in prayer discipleship in families and in churches around the
0: world we'll have a link to both the book and the podcast in the show notes by the time you hear this the book will likely be live cuz i'm recording this way ahead of time and if it goes well we may have to have you back to talk about the impact of turning a podcast into a book. That happens a lot in the secular world, and not nearly as often as I would like to see in the Christian writing world, because I, I think it's a really solid strategy. <laughs> creating a podcast and then creating a book version, it's kind of like writing a book and then creating a movie version. And people aren't like, oh, I don't want to watch a movie for that, I already read the book. No, they're the first in line. <laughs> they're the most excited, because getting something that you love in a different format, in a different medium, is really exciting. And it's a different experience to read it in a well-edited book and have that artifact you can put on your shelf. It's really different than listening to an invisible podcast.
1: Absolutely. And it's actually worked in in the reverse way as well. Now that I have the book, planning out new seasons is easier because the book is a collection of 365 prayers themed around different needs. And so now as I'm looking at, well, what am I going to publish next year on the podcast? I have like 12 different collections I can choose from. And so it's worked both ways. I've been very pleased with the process.
0: And I'll have links to Ashreya's website and the book and the podcast in the show notes and her other books. She's got a bunch of really great books. We'll have a link to all of those. I encourage you to check them out. Ashreya, do you have any final tips of encouragement or advice?
1: Yeah, I love practical help. If... You're listening to this and you're like, you know, what? I could really use one of those pre-writing rituals or one of those prayers to help me get my head in the writing zone. I have a freebie for listeners. It's called Three Prayers Before You Start Writing. Um, and you can pick one based on how you're feeling that day. And you can find that at asharita.com backslash writers.
0: And I'll have a link to that as well. So you can find the show notes at christianpublishingshow.com and it will have links to all the things. So, as long as you can remember Christian Publishing Show, you'll find links to the three pairs before you start writing, which I love that idea. And what a God-honoring way to get into the zone, right? We want to get into God's zone. You've been listening to The Christian Publishing Show, produced by Lori Christine. I'm your host, Thomas Umstead, Jr., and we've had today's special guest, Ashrita Chuchu. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.